In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. We have a super exciting episode for you today. We will start off by talking about corruption uh, at the mm. Supreme Court. Um, I don't think mm. this is really a type of corruption that we've talked about too much in the past, mm. but it's nice to know that it's it, that it infects all the branches. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know we we've talked a lot about like corruption in the legislature, corruption mm-hmm. in the uh, executive branch. Mm-hmm. We just haven't we haven't given the judicial branch. It's due diligence. And exactly. there's actually so much corruption in the judicial branch. Yeah. Like so much of it. It would be And I feel like I feel like the corruption in the judicial branch is probably listening to our podcast and just feeling left out. Exactly. It it would be so rude to the judicial yeah. branch if we didn't recognize how corrupt it truly is. <laughs> um so we'll start off by talking about that. And then our second segment tonight will be focused on a very hot topic these days, the four day work week. We were thinking about we were thinking about it. We were we were you know, it was like Nathan's idea to like just finally dive in and really understand what's really going on here. Is it yeah. actually something that we should be seriously pushing for? Yeah, yeah. I I love our policy deep dive segment, so I'm really looking forward to that one. Me too. Me too. But first, before we get to the fun, we've got to eat our vegetables. So, <laughs> <laughs> at a time of historically low approval ratings, low confidence. Uh, and a crisis of legitimacy, the Supreme Court was like, "Hmm, let's let's shovel a bit more on, shall we?" <laughs> wait, 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 wait! They have a crisis of legitimacy. What did sure, they do? Yeah. Something crazy? Like take away half of like the rights of half of the population of the United States? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what did they do? Oh. Something crazy? Like reverse a fifty-year precedent <laughs> with no sound legal reasoning? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's all the true. Like th- that's the thing. legitimacy crises can come from so many different angles. You can Mm, be bad at your job as they clearly are, uh, but you can also be corrupt in your job, which we now know they clearly are. Which interestingly enough, those two things seem to go hand in hand. Hmm. It's almost as if corruption can infringe on your ability to do your job. Therefore, maybe we should try to prevent that corruption so you can do your job properly. Whoa, 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 Nathan. Listen to Tips for Good last week. That's a bold claim. <laughs> that is a bold claim. <laughs> that is a bold claim. Very bold. So, <laughs> Well, then let's defend it. Yeah, so the reason we're talking about this is because of recent reporting, primarily from ProPublica, but a number of outlets have been putting out investigations into- Which, uh, mad, mad credit to yeah. ProPublica. All right, ProPublica is a wonderful investigative outlet it's a wonderful outlet, and it did its due diligence. I I know that on the pod we often criticize the the media for mm-hmm. you know instances where they don't do a good job at holding uh, like speaking truth to power and holding those in power accountable. Yeah. ProPublica is one of those outlets that actually does have a pretty good track record at doing that. So yeah. huge credit to ProPublica, and definitely in this case, like and definitely in this reading case. through where they're getting evidence for some Mm. of these allegations it's like oh my god you like went through all the faa records like okay but we'll get there (laughs) we'll get there so basically probably has put out this uh these articles 
um, focusing on Justice Clarence Thomas and revelations that he has had a multi-decade-long relationship with a billionaire named Harlan Crow, which has included a bunch of shady shit that we'll get into. Um, we've talked about Clarence Thomas before, mainly focused on his batshit crazy viewpoints, mm. uh, which seem to be tenuously related to reality and even less tenuously related to the law. Um, and yeah. you might as, be... as my wife, as my wife likes to call him, um, Justice Clarence, fuck you, got mine, Thomas. <laughs> well, <laughs> dude, it's so true. And that's like, that's not even, that's like even more accurate given this, yeah. all this corruption stuff. But yeah. like, you may be like, wait a second, didn't we hear about corruption and Clarence Thomas and a whole thing recently? In which case you'd be thinking about the incident, I think last year where Thomas failed to recuse himself from a case that touched on involvement of his wife, Ginny Thomas, in efforts to overturn the 2020 election, which yeah. like caused like general outrage, outcry, um, and kind of shined a bit of a spotlight on the lack of oversight, ethics rules, and any kind of enforcement mechanisms in the Supreme Court. And this case blows all of that like even yeah. further out of the water. And, and what's so funny about it is that it also goes against the persona that he's tried to put on for the public. I know. So there was a so there was a documentary, which by the way, <laughs> was actually partially funded by Crow. <laughs> yeah. Which is hilarious. Yeah. Where uh Thomas said, quote, I don't have any problem with going to Europe, but I prefer the United States. I prefer seeing the regular parts of the United States. I prefer the RV parks. I prefer the Walmart parking lots to the beaches and things like that. There's something normal to me about it. I come from regular stock, and I prefer that. I prefer being around that. Bull fucking shit! <laughs> <laughs> and again, the guy that funded lavish trips on yachts with full staff that were catering to his every needs that were going to places like fucking Indonesia. Yeah. He helped fund this documentary. Yeah. In yeah. which he said this bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, that's so hilarious and ironic. And like partly what's so absurd about those claims is that, no, you don't. Like, no yeah. one does. Why would you prefer a parking lot to a, a beach? A Walmart parking Any, lot. Why would anyone prefer that? Like, I feel like, I think he thinks that that's what normal people do. Like, exactly. that's what poor people do. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm like one of the poors. You know, they vacation at what? Like, I don't know. They spend a lot of time at Walmart. Yeah. I, I mean, Walmart parking lots, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, that's what normal people do. They take their RV and go to Walmart parking lots and have a fucking barbecue. Yeah, it's like when, uh, what was it, when Dr. Oz was, like, talking about yeah. the price of, like, crudite or something. <laughs> like, it's like, you don't get It's like, don't this is what normal it. people do, right? Yeah, that's, oh, God, that's so funny. I love it when I would touch people, try to be relatable. It's the best. So, okay, so let's talk about what actually, like, uh, is going on here. So we should probably talk at least a little bit about Harlan Crow to establish mm. kind of his bona fides as a horrible corrupting piece of shit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so let's start by talking about harlan crow so harlan crow is a billionaire real estate magnate like and already. already that puts him a little on the shit list 
Although, you know, you get some nice billionaires out there that shouldn't be billionaires, and, and the good ones are working hard at getting rid of all their money. But Harlan Crow is not one of those people. Mm. One of the ways we know that he's not one of those people is uh, his long history of being an influential figure in pro-business conservative politics. So he has spent millions of dollars on, like, efforts to shape laws and the ideology of the judiciary, um, including like donating significant amounts of money to the Federalist Society, which is the conservative organization that basically crafted the lists of federal, uh, that like Trump picked names of federal justices uh, and judges when he was like flooding the court with not only overtly conservative people, but also like unqualified people. Those people Mm -hmm. were coming from Federalist Society lists which is an organization that Crow like directly funded. Um, he also has given millions of dollars to groups to uh, to push for tort reform um, and for just general conservative jurisprudence. And he's also um, given significant amounts of money to a- AEI and the Hoover Institution, which are conservative think tanks uh, on which he sits on the board, um, which publish scholarship to advance conservative legal theories, as well as... Um, file amicus briefs in front of the Supreme Court, which is basically an amicus brief is essentially when someone who's not a party to a case files a document with the court arguing, like adding in additional evidence and argumentation in favor of the particular side that they support in that Supreme Court case. I'm sorry, there's there's a conservative think tank group called the Hoover Institute? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, talk is. about saying the quiet part out loud, bros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. And so like these are reasons why Harlan Crow is like a very conservative pro-capitalist like hardcore billionaire. Revelations have come out as well that make him like even worse than that. Like yeah. there's been reporting about like significant amounts of like Nazi memorabilia in his house cuz he's like a collector apparently. Mm. Um which is like, why like can't billionaires ever collect normal things? <laughs> <laughs> like, why does it have to be? Why does it always have to be like really weird shit like that? Yeah, or like really bad things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't really get it. I don't get the obsession. But he's got like, you know, documents that have like that were signed by Hitler. I think he's got a signed copy of Mein Kampf. He's got like a ton why of memorabilia. Why do you that want that? Exactly. Why, why do you want that? And if you're already a conservative, like, activist, why even risk yeah. the notion that you might actually be a Nazi by having rooms full of Nazi shit? <laughs> <laughs> like, it, in Indiana Jones, when he gets to, like, the Nazi camps or whatever, and there's swastikas all over everything, he does a very, he he, he performs a very quick and easy leap, which is, hmm, these might be Nazis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite lines in the entire Indiana Jones franchise is Nazis. I hate these guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only if only our Supreme Court justices could live up to Indiana Jones. Maybe we maybe maybe we should put Indy Indy on the fucking Supreme Court. <laughs> there I mean, we go. <laughs> honestly, he'd he'd probably do a better job. <laughs> he probably would. And he'd have more historical context. That is true. That is true. Yeah. So okay, so we've established Harlan Crow as a piece of shit. We established Claren Thomas as a piece of shit. 
And now we're going to establish that these two pieces of shit have been floating around in the same toilet for 20 years. <laughs> so I do not want to picture that. <laughs> nobody, and apparently, I guess in this analogy, nobody ever flushed. They just, you know, just no. left it there. Well, they just left it the there. only way you can flush a Supreme Court piece of shit is via impeachment. And we don't yeah. have any of the votes to impeach a Supreme Court piece true. of shit. That is true. <laughs> okay, so... Um, so just to put this in a little bit further context as well, like, I don't know about you, Nathan. I don't know how much Supreme Court justices make. Maybe it's yeah. millions. If it's millions, like having a billionaire friend, like treat you to some stuff is not cool, but like, it's not, you know, it's still like in the league of life that you might be living already. You might already yeah. be going on trips to Indonesia on like yeah. private planes and stuff. Yeah. Well, that's not the case. So Thomas as a Supreme Court justice, makes about $285,000 a year, which is a Still hefty good. salary. That's yeah. a very nice salary. I'd, hell, I'd take that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would take that for sure in a second. Although, that doesn't put him anywhere near the league of being able to run in the social circles of someone like Harlan Crow, who is a billionaire. Yeah. That yeah. salary, that entire salary is left less than half of the value of one of the vacations that Clarence Thomas was taken on with Harlan Crow. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about like someone who's like only able to live at a certain standard, a certain lifestyle in like going on lavish vacations, going to retreats, taking private jets with Crow, like only able to experience those things. Going As to a, result, a private resort. Yeah, private. Re yeah, exactly. Private resort, which importantly wasn't even owned by Harlan Crow. It's owned by one of his companies, which yeah. is important because like, according to the ethics standards, if we can get into this, you're allowed to be hosted. Yeah. But like, if you're being hosted by a company and not a friend, that's pretty yeah. different. Yeah. And, and look, so there are also rules about how much money... Yeah, uh, a gift or something of value can be that you receive. Mm -hmm. And it's different for different parts of government. For example, in Congress, you're generally prohibited from taking gifts that are worth $50 or more. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you're going to go on a trip with somebody, it has to be pre-approved by an ethics committee. Mm -hmm. uh, for the Supreme Court, uh, justices, uh, according to ProPublica, are generally required to re at least report gifts they're worth more than uh, 415, mm -hmm. which a, a gift in this case is defined as anything of value. And yep. like Michael said, the only exception to that rule is if you go to a friend's private residence and mm -hmm. they host you for dinner or something like that, which yep. totally makes sense. I mean, you, you know, I, I don't need to know that, you know, you decided to go over to your friend's house for lasagna or whatever. Like yep. we, we, we don't need to know that, that, that doesn't matter. However, when it comes to paying for transportation, yes, that shit needs to be disclosed. When it comes to uh, a resort that in this case was not necessarily owned by Crow personally, it was owned by his company, mm -hmm. that needs to be disclosed. Yeah. And also, Crow was apparently paying for the, the private school tuition of Clarence Thomas's gr uh, grandnephew, who mm -hmm. he himself has has indicated that he's raising this this guy as a son a tuition which is six thousand dollars a month yeah exactly like yeah that is something of value 
Ser- yeah, seriously. So, so I think that's like I think that's a really important thing to call out because to your point, Nathan, like maybe if we give Clarence Thomas a huge benefit of the doubt, maybe Crow and he are very close friends, and we can talk about the fact that a Supreme Court justice is friends with someone who collects Nazi memorabilia. But like yeah. Clarence Thomas, a, we already knew he was a piece a of black, shit. A black Supreme Court justice. Yeah, but like, but again, like this is just with questioning. somebody who correct who collects Nazi memorabilia. Yeah, I'm just saying, bro. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd is... be a little ner- I'd be a little nervous around that dude. <laughs> yeah, but again, this is like questioning like their personal choices and like. So if you like yeah. give him a bunch of benefit of the doubt, maybe he's just friends with Crow. Crow wants him to hang out, but Crow's not going to hang out in the kind of places that Clarence Thomas can afford. So he takes him on lavish trips, and maybe Clarence Thomas misunderstood the ethics requirements for like disclosure and recusal and things like that and maybe just got it wrong but that's the thing there are certain things that you might get from a friend you might stay at a friend's house they might pay for your bus ticket they might pay for your dinner there are certain things that no one gets from their friends (laughs) yeah and things like having someone that clarence thomas you know treats raises as a son his grandnephew having his tuition paid for by someone is like that's not really a gift and most yeah. Im- like or it's not like a normal gift and most importantly or, or something that i find really interesting is that thomas got another gift from other friends at one point he received five thousand dollars from another friend in support of this grandnephew's tuition which is a very generous and very unusual gift and you know what he did he fucking disclosed it and yet he didn't disclose the $6,000 a month he was getting from Harlan Crow, which if you like, if, if Crow covered the cost over the four years, that's well over like $150,000 in, in payment, which again, if you're making $285,000 a year, you know, like 150000 bucks or 6000 bucks a month is a really significant cost, yeah. not something that you would like pass off lightly. And I think I think one thing that's really important here is that we can have an argument about what were the actual intentions. Mm-hmm. And you know, a person can also make the argument that, well, you can't prove that yeah. these gifts had an impact on a person's uh, voting record or uh, on a person's rulings. You can't prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. But here's the thing. When it comes to bribery, you don't have to prove that. When it comes to normal cases of bribery, you don't have to prove that. Evident, again, by the fact that there is a certain amount of money in gifts that a Supreme Court justice has to disclose. Considering, Also considering the fact that in Congress, you can't accept a gift that is more than 50 bucks, and you have to disclose trips before you go on them. Mm-hmm. And that is because, yes, bribery is really difficult to prove in terms of intent, but you don't need to prove intent in order to prove bribery. You just have to prove that somebody has given somebody something significant of value, mm-hmm. you know, and and that puts their judgment, that makes their judgment compromised overall. Yeah. So a retired federal judge, uh, Nancy Gertner, said, quote, it's incomprehensible to me that someone would do this. 
And she said that when she was on the bench, she was so cautious about appearances, not not, not just what she was doing, but uh, the appearance of what she was doing. She mm-hmm. was so cautious that when she would make dinner reservations, she wouldn't even mention her title. She would be very careful not to even mention her title. Yeah, because course. the important thing here is not just like the, the important question here is not just whether or not these actually did impact his rulings. It's does it appear that way? And, and again, I know that normally appearances shouldn't matter, but when it comes to public trust, mm-hmm. when it comes to whether or not a public figure has been compromised by a monumentally wealthy person that has a very clear political agenda, mm-hmm. appearances sure as hell do matter. Yeah. And that is why bribery, when it comes to bribery, you don't even necessarily have to prove what's in the person's mind. You don't even necessarily have to prove that that specific bribe is what ultimately led them to vote this specific way. Mm-hmm. It's just the fact that the person gave them the money and they are in that position or that thing of value and they are in that position that is necessary for determining whether or not a bribe happened. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why we have ethics rules, right? And that's why you have ethics rules. You can discipline and you can uh, and you can censure and you can have consequences for things that you might not be able to prove in court, right? To your point, like bribery can be very difficult to prove. But, but forcing you to comply with ethics standards is meant to enable us to avoid even having to get to that stage. And to your point about the appearance of impropriety, this is like... This is like table stakes for ethics stuff for public servants. Like the code of conduct for federal judges, which sit below the Supreme Court, requires them to avoid even the, quote, appearance of impropriety. To your point, it's about the fact that federal judges sit for their, like, have lifetime tenure, right? And they are like, they're like supposed to be above reproach, right? They're supposed to be bastions of, well-balanced interpretations of the law. And we know that that's like, you know, an archetype. It's like too far beyond, but they're at the very least not supposed to be swayed by their relationships or the people that are like funding their life and funding the pe- the lives of the people that they care about. Like like if you if you were applying to be in the CIA and you were getting money from third parties to pay for your kid to go to a private school or as is also the case here justices thomas's mother justice thomas's mother lives in a home owned by harlan crow and she lives there for free right the fact that like you could easily be influenced like overtly or implicitly by the fact that someone has a direct has direct control over whether your mother gets kicked out of her house or whether yeah. your grandnephew, who you raise and love like a son, gets kicked out of school. Like, yeah. that, that's beyond a, an appearance of impropriety. Yeah. One of, uh, one of Crow's defenses was basically, this is exactly how I treat all my friends. Mm-hmm. To, which, to which my response was, okay, who are those friends? Give me a list of names because I want to see if there are any people in Congress that are on that list. I want to see if there are any if there are any other people of power that that are on that list because mm-hmm. you know that would be worse. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, no kidding. 
but 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 like do are you do you seriously expect us to believe and like we don't even necessarily have to you don't even necessarily have to prove this one way or another but i mean on a personal level do you seriously expect me to believe that you're paying six thousand dollars a month to his grandnephew yeah because you just love Thomas's winning personality. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. I mean, okay, maybe that is it, but it doesn't matter ultimately because like like Michael said, even the appearance of impropriety mm-hmm. is harmful to the overall trust of the Supreme Court. But the problem is while those lower courts do have the ability to have oversight over ethics concerns, over recusals, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court does not. Yeah, and in fact, Roberts even says that they often consult with ethics rules uh, of the lower courts, mm-hmm. but they don't have to follow them. And he's yeah. even defended them not having to follow them by basically saying, "Well, there's no court higher than the, than the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. so the only the only people." that could try to demand a recusal or try to enforce a recusal would be other people on the bench, which they might do that because they're trying to affect the ruling. Yep. It's like, okay, maybe, but does that mean the solution is just no fucking ethics rules? Mm-hmm. Also, yeah, exactly. his big, his big legal defense, uh, uh, chief justice Roberts's big legal defense is the fact that Congress created the lower courts, but the Constitution created the Supreme Court. And because of that, Congress can make ethics rules for the lower courts, but they're not allowed to make ethics rules for the Supreme Court. Yeah. I got to say, I'm going to call bullshit on that. (laughs) You know why I'm going to call bullshit on that? Because ultimately, Congress has the ability to impeach Supreme Court justices, right? They are... You know, they serve on good under good behavior, right? Which means that Roberts's point, which is essentially that you can't make ethics rules for us because you can't provide consequences for our actions. You can't, like, change the law. You can't do all this kind of stuff. That's not true. There is a consequence they can do. Now, now it's political because impeachment is inherently a political process. But if you have a list of things which you are not allowed to do, it becomes way easier and way more convincing to be able to say, well, you did one of these things. We're going to impeach you. Like you can write down a list of things that they're not allowed to do that if they don't, that if they violate, they're supposed to like serve some consequence. So it was really disheartening though, to like see that all nine justices signed onto a letter basically saying that like, there's nothing anybody can do to impose ethics requirements on them. Yeah. It was like, now I don't know if it's like all because they think that they shouldn't be bound by ethics lo- rules or if it's just, they don't think it's worth wading into some of the constitution and legal questions about whether they can be bound by ethics rules. But like, it's, that's just a really unfortunate thing to see even from the liberal justices on the court. Yeah. And it's and apparently in terms of corruption on the Supreme Court, the last point I want to make is uh, it's not just Thomas. Yeah, it was recently revealed that Gorsuch was trying to sell a property for more than two years, and he finally found a buyer. The buyer was a chief executive of some massive law firm, 
and he happens to purchase it nine days after Gorsuch was confirmed to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. You think those two things might have something to do with each other? Yeah. No, the property was there for two years, but as soon as he was on the Supreme Court, oh my God, the property is so much more valuable. We really have yeah. to buy it. <laughs> so it is such a shame that the highest court in the land has lower ethics rules. I mean, here, let me let me yeah. let me let me give you an example real quick. So there's no requirements in a lot of these situations for these justices to recuse themselves from potential court cases that uh, involve their friends, which, by the way, there was actually a uh, a copyright dispute involving one of the companies that Crow was a partial owner of in mm-hmm. 2005, which uh, Thomas did not recuse himself on. Yep. Um, so I'm I'm a I'm a coach mm-hmm. for the speech team, all right, and. I am not allowed to judge my own students. And in fact, if I ever coached another student, like from another team within the last three years, I have to go to the the people running the tournament and tell them, you need to block me from judging this person. Mm-hmm. I am required to do that. Yeah. I have a higher, I, I have higher ethical standards imposed on me as a fucking speech coach and a fucking speech judge than the Supreme Court, yeah, the highest law of the land. I work for a bank, and I have stricter ethics requirements than the Supreme Court, the <laughs> highest <laughs> court in the oh, land. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> so for our next segment, we're doing one of our newer uh, short segments, which is called Beyond the Talking Points. So Nathan, what's beyond the talking points? Well, Michael, sometimes there are just talking points or so-called facts or frequently cited bullshit that political commentators or politicians are always throwing out there that if you took a half second to just do a little bit of research, a little bit of thinking, or even ask a few questions, you would realize, huh, that's actually bullshit, <laughs> or there's actually more to it than that. Mm-hmm. And so we made this segment to kind of give some simple agency to people that when they hear some random BS that's floating around the internet, that they can go beyond the talking points. So Michael, which talking point are we going beyond today? Okay, today we are breaking down uh, the claim that if we want to stop school shootings, we need more police in schools. Hmm. Yeah. So there's a couple ways to attack this. We'll break it down into just a few simple things that you can remember to be able to argue against this claim. First of all, multiple studies uh, on the effect of armed guards in schools uh, have shown that their presence is actually completely unrelated to the prevention or lowering of severity of school shootings. One study, and it's just one study, so we can't anchor too much to it, but one study actually found that the death rate during shooting incidents in schools with an armed guard present was actually nearly three times as high as during school incidents where there was no armed guard present. So point one, armed guards in schools don't stop or even reduce the severity of school shootings. What armed guards in schools do, 
often called school resource officer, is they actually harm kids and increase criminality. So students at policed schools are almost five times more likely to face criminal charges for quote-unquote disorderly conduct. This is conduct that may be disruptive, but doesn't rise to the level of violence. This is not assault, right? So we're talking about behavior that might be pretty normal student behavior that's slightly disruptive. But So basically, it's a classic case of when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Precisely. Five times more likely to be charged with a crime of disorderly conduct if you have a police officer in school. And what we know about going like being charged with a crime is that once a student is in the juvenile detention system, right, they become 23% more likely to commit a crime as an adult relative to those who... Uh, who were not detained, right, relative to similar crimes done by juveniles, but they didn't go uh, into juvenile detention, right? So you're more likely to be arrested, and you're more likely, and once you become, like, detained as a juvenile, you are more likely to commit crimes and enter, like, and, and recidivize as an adult, right? And f- for all of these effects, you are much more likely to be in a policed school if you're a non-white student, and if you're a very poor student. So overall, school resource officers don't prevent mass shootings. They increase criminality, they, which increases the likelihood that students will become criminals as adults. And these harms are disproportionately felt by non-white students and poor students. And if you want a more comprehensive overview of the relationship between schools and prisons, or the school-to-prison pipeline, Go back to our episode from July 2020 called Zero Tolerance, Zero Success. And that's Beyond the Talking Point. So for our next segment, we are talking about the four-day work week. Um, This is a concept that has gained a lot of momentum in recent years, partially because people are really unhappy at their jobs. So in in 2020, 62% of people reported that they had experienced burnout often or extremely often in the three months prior to the study. And in 2021, 67% of workers reported that stress and burnout had increased since the pandemic. So at the end of 2022, there concluded the largest ever study of the four-day work week. Yeah. And furthermore, furthermore, before we before we go over that, in 2022, uh, Gallup released a survey that found that 21% of employees, only 21% of employees, are engaged at work, hmm. and 33% of employees feel like they are thriving in their overall well-being. Only 33%. Only 33%. Considering that most adults work. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's that's terrible. Yeah. Now. Before we get into the study itself, mm-hmm. I actually want to do a little bit of steel manning here. Yeah. Steel manning against the argument. Totally. I, I feel the same way because I these are these are worries that I personally have about this the four day work week. Absolutely. Absolutely. So some potential drawbacks about the uh, the four day work week. Um, number one, which I think this one's fairly intuitive, uh, it doesn't suit all industries. Yeah. You know, there are some industries that really do need to be uh, in business all seven days. 
And and that doesn't necessarily mean that every single person there is working all mm-hmm. seven of those days. Um, but that does mean that you are probably going to have to hire more people in order to in order to make sure that you're keeping up with that. Mm-hmm. So it, and also, you know, as as we know from uh, our, our frequent looks at various different uh, approaches to running businesses, there are very few one size fits all. Yeah. All right. Part of the reason why I support unions so much is because unions often fight for better guidelines within their specific within their specific organization. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can have better labor labor standards that are passed by Congress and that's great. But at the end of the day, the people that know what works the best are the people that actually work for the industry, mm. which is why having unions is so valuable. Oh, so, that's such a great you know, point. so it's not necessarily a one size fits all. Uh, it it absolutely doesn't suit all workers. I mean, you know, there are there are some employees out there that are perfectly okay with working 5 days a week mm-hmm. and are perfectly cool with overtime. And you know what? Power to them, right? Uh, and in and in some cases, it can also increase costs because you know, again, like like we said, in some cases, in order to keep up with the demand, you're going to have to hire more staff, which is going mm. to increase prices. And there have absolutely been some cases in which there have been companies that have attempted to do this, that have attempted some version of a four-day work week, and it ended up actually lowering productivity and increasing burnout because they were doing, um, like they were they were required to do more work with less time. Yeah, and um, that's that's so my that does big happen. Personal worry, just generally speaking, like if I were to think about doing my work with one fewer day, yeah. Like that gets me sweating. <laughs> yeah. Cause yeah. like ultimately at the end of the day, like companies are not going to implement this unless there's some kind of bottom line benefit. Yeah. Yeah. And also like in some ways, like t- to some extent or another, it might impact college education because we might say it's, it's a four day instructional week. But then again, when you're a college professor, you know, you're, your schedule kind of varies based on what your classes are. And and on top of that, the only like official time that you put up is the time in the classroom and the time in office hours, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily account for all the time you spend grading. And, you know, you, you know, any professor can tell you when you're a professor, like you try to find your own schedule but mm. especially towards the end towards finals week you're going to be grading on the weekends you're going to be grading like whenever yeah. um but you do kind of end up creating your own schedule when it comes to grading mm-hmm. uh so you know to some extent that'll that would impact um that would impact colleges but you know it, it's again it's not necessarily a one size fits all yeah here's why it's still important though and here's why it's still good so there was a study that was carried out that was in the UK by a group uh, that is called Autonomy, and it was done alongside researchers uh, from from Boston College. Mm-hmm. All right, and and a nonprofit group called Four Day Work Week Global. Yeah, yeah. So here's how it worked: there were 61 companies that were involved, and between those companies, there were about 2,900 workers. The study took place between June to December 2022. And prior to the start of it, 
they did two months of preparation for each of the participants, which meant that they were incorporating these workshops, coaching, mentorships, peer support, in order to try to find specific ways of working smarter and not harder. Mm. Basically, the idea was we need to prepare for this because, you know, to to, to Michael's point earlier and to to one of the one of the potential drawbacks of a four day work week, if you are given less time to do a project, then that can potentially increase burnout. But mm -hmm. if you prepare yourself, you find ways of maximizing efficiency by again, working smarter, not harder, and you give yourself plenty of time to prep so you're not just going straight from having five days to having four days, it can potentially maximize results. The idea behind this was what they referred to as a 180-100 policy, which again, was also not a one-size-fits-all mm -hmm. because it was a, a one-size-fits-all in that you had to fulfill those percentages. And I'll break down what those percentages mean in just a second, but it was not a one-size-fits-all in that companies created their own versions of this. Mm -hmm. Like there wasn't a standardized version of it. Companies created their own version of it. So the 180-100 means that they had they had to do 100% of the work, meaning 100% of the productivity, 80% mm -hmm. of the time for 100% of the payment, all right? So it's same payment, same work, but 80% of the time. Mm -hmm. They prepped for it. They, 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 they did a two-month prep period for each company. Each company created their own version of the 180-100 policy. And what they found, the results, hmm. were an undeniable success. Of the 81 companies that participated, 56 are continuing with the four-day work week, and 18 have confirmed that it is now a permanent fixture. It is now a permanent policy mm -hmm. in their company. Now, you might think, well, but hold on, Nathan. If they had less time, then, well, didn't weren't they also less efficient? Well, I'm glad you asked, listener, because no, <laughs> they were not less efficient. In fact, interestingly enough, on average, it actually increased revenue by 1.4%, mm -hmm. which if you're increasing revenue with less work, that's called increasing efficiency. Yeah. So this is like, this is the thing that I was most worried about prior to this study, which is like, again, as I said, like companies are not going to sign up for this yeah. and it's going to be hard to force them to do it unless we can show that on the bottom line, there is like either a insignificant impact or a benefit. And, and I had seen some of the productivity numbers and it made me a little nervous because people were really focusing on productivity. But the problem is like productivity is output per unit of input, right? Yeah. It's like efficiency. So like you could have productivity go up, but because you're reducing the input enough, you could have total output go down as a result. And the fact that by reducing the work week by 20%, you need to have 25% increase in productivity on every given day. That's like a pretty high bar to meet, right? And so like you could pretty easily see a case where even though you increase productivity somewhat, you don't get all of that benefit back, right? You still yeah. have compromised output. Um, but it was really encouraging to me that these companies appear to be seeing like pretty similar output despite uh, yeah. the 20% reduction in input. 
Yeah. Again, it's 100%, 80%, 100%. And that's exactly how it worked. And, you know, the, the, the bottom line, of course, that's the most important thing for the, uh, for the companies, Mm -hmm. but the most important things for us, actually, here's another important thing for companies before I get into the, the human benefits. Mm -hmm. Uh, here's another benefit. There was a 65% reduction in the number of sick days that were being taken. Yeah, totally. Like, which I find that very telling that when you actually feel like, you know, you're, you have a reasonable schedule, mm-hmm. you're playing hooky less. Yeah, totally. And like, t- like in addition, like there's, there's a bunch of benefits even aside from total output, which is why I was like talking about the bottom line and not just like total like revenue or whatever. So the fact that the revenue is still like solid or even up a little bit means that like, combined with all these cost benefits you are really ending up ahead the fact that yeah. um compared to the same period last year the year before the study like a qu- employees quitting was down 57 percent, which is yeah. remarkable like turnover the cost of turnover of having to hire new employees and find them and train them and all that stuff is really expensive and so if you can reduce that by making working conditions better you can save a ton of money and at the same time, job applications were up 88%. So like they're getting going to be getting higher quality candidates that are wanting to work for them and fewer people trying to leave the company. These are very tangible benefits. Yeah. And in terms of the human benefits, which I, I think that this, this is both a human benefit and a bottom line benefit, uh, 71% of employees reported lower levels of burnout. Mm, that's huge. Which... That is huge. Again, that affects the bottom line, but that also like affects your overall interest in life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, in your work. In your like, ability to focus. I don't know about you. When I'm burned out, when I'm exhausted, I cannot keep my attention on my work. It's yeah. so it's so difficult. And that, that makes yeah. all the difference. Yeah. No, I uh I try to be really good in terms of grading, mm-hmm. you know, about not letting it affect it. But I, I I have honestly had some points where I was so burnt out that I was just like, that's a grammatical issue. I could highlight it and tell them they need to fix it. Or I could just be like, you know what? I don't even like commas anymore. Fuck commas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like we're all human. Yeah. Right. Reduced energy, reduced, like, like increased stress, increased burnout. These affect our ability to pay attention which affects our quality of our work and affects our efficiency. It affects our ability to um, care about the quality of our work, which affects both like, and it affects our creativity, reduces our ability to like come up with new ways of doing things overall. Like burnout is a huge cost. Yeah. And 39% of employees were less stressed, Mm -hmm. which is awesome in terms of uh, social life. I'm for, 54 percent it was easier to balance uh work and household jobs um employees were more satisfied with their household finances 60 mm. percent of percent of employees found an increased ability to combine their paid work with their care responsibilities so mm. like being able to do being able to do things at home uh 62 percent found it easier to combine work with social life mm-hmm. you know you're having an overall just more fulfilling life yeah you're having a life that you are still producing the same amount of efficiency Mm -hmm. 
and the same amount of the product, but you're able to enjoy your time more outside of, of your job. Like, I, I don't know about you, even as somebody who does have a job that I love and is very fulfilled at my job, I know that at the end of a really long day that I've experienced a lot of burnout, it's sometimes hard for me to be social with my wife. Like it's, yeah. it's sometimes oh, yeah. difficult for yeah. me to have like meaningful conversations with her. Like I, I get home and she'll, she'll want to talk about like some, some personal thing. And I'm like, I love you so much. I do not have the spoons for this. Dude, I <laughs> get know? that so, so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, like difficult conversations are saved for the weekend or they, you know, or they, or we have them at times when I'm not in the mental space to be able to have them. Or like we, we, we often talk about like the transition period from work where I'm just like a different person entirely from like who I am, yeah. like at other times. It's like, I sometimes am hesitant to even schedule any kind of social interaction in the evenings because yeah. I'm so wrung out and stale that like, yeah. I feel like I'm not even like being like a fun person to hang out with. Yeah. Like, like being exhausted and stuff affects all parts of life. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is extremely important and also extremely telling and should be informative to people that support labor reform is that labor reform is not just about increasing salary and increasing benefits. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes that is such a huge focus on discussions about labor reforms mm -hmm. that we miss out on the fact that conditions are just as important. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that pay isn't important. Pay absolutely is important. All right. People should be receiving money that is a living wage mm -hmm. and they should be receiving benefits that you know that keep them alive. Yeah. Right. That that yeah. that uh that adequately compensate them for the labor that they put in. Mm -hmm. Like that that is important. I'm not saying that's not important, but just as important are the conditions that people work. Absolutely. Because you know what you could you could pay me like three million dollars, but if it's a job that I am fucking miserable at mm -hmm. and I barely get any time outside of that job to do anything. I'm going to have a miserable life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm much absolutely. like right now. I'm much happier having a relatively average salary at a job that I love doing mm -hmm. than, you know, than if it was like, if I was working like every second of the day all the time for, for a million dollar salary. Yep. And yep. it turns out there was a significant chunk of employees that were involved in this study that feel the same way. One of the biggest and most telling parts uh, and, and and telling statistics that I read was that 15% of the employees said that no amount of money would induce them to accept a five day work week schedule, mm. which they were now accustomed to Wow, 15%. You could not pay them <laughs> more to do that extra day. Yeah. 15%. Now, you know, that's not a majority, but that is still a chunk. Yeah. Seriously. Like, and and I think that that's I think that that's reasonable, because you know look at all these benefits that we listed about how much how much better it is for your personal life, for your mental health, mm -hmm. for your physical health, and it's better for your wallet. 
Yeah. Like if you don't have to commute that last day, you're saving money on transportation, you're saving money on childcare, which is enough to absorb a full salary in the United States, right? Yeah. You're like saving like, you know, money on food. Like how many people don't have the wherewithal to make their food at home or whatever and have to buy lunch for 12 or 15 bucks every day? Like we're talking about serious savings. It costs a lot to go to work. And not to mention, it it saves the company money too. If you're working at an office job and the office is, is closed three days instead of two days, then that means like less electricity, less having to maintain the facilities, mm-hmm. you know, that, that reduces the amount of money that the company has to pay. Yeah. And reduces the, like the, uh, the climate impact of people commuting and like keeping office buildings open as well, which is pretty yeah. substantial. So I think that the critiques that I, that I stated earlier, the critiques that I stated earlier are definitely critiques that should be taken into account yes. and should be considered when it comes to uh, to incorporating a policy such as this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make the policy bad, though. It yeah. just means that there are concerns that you need to address. Like I said earlier, this, this specific experiment, this trial, uh, had a two-month period in which they were you know, they were trying to make sure that each of the that each of the companies were coaching themselves and preparing themselves for that decrease in the amount of time that they were working. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, they created the the 180 100 policy, but they let companies decide how they were going to incorporate it. Yeah. So, if if progressives and people that are, or just people who are pro labor in general, are going to fight for this policy. Fight for it smart. Yes. All right. Fight for a smart version of this policy. Yeah. Fight for a version of this policy that does take into account that there are some industries that do have to run seven days a week. Mm-hmm. But maybe, you know, but of course, maybe that means that there are certain people that might not need to be there every single day of those week uh, yeah. of, of 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 that week. Yeah. Which we we already we already have standards regarding that. Mm-hmm. Um, this would just be adding an extra day to that. Yeah. Uh, I think. I think there's like I think you're totally right. I think there's probably more uh, somewhat more studies that need to be done cuz like this was a very comprehensive study, but to your point, like so many businesses and industries are all different. Um and ultimately like there's not there's no amount of well not no amount, but it's unrealistic that like an increase in productivity will compensate for just overworked employees. If you just yeah. are expecting too much from the people that you have in yeah. your organization, uh, shortening the amount of time they have to do that work is not going to solve the problem. Yeah. So yeah. to your point, it's about how you do it, not just that you do it. But I like yeah. the push to change the standard. I like the push yeah. to set an av- like a standard work week at 32 hours. Because what yeah. it does is it it encourages a change in mindset, encourages focus on efficiency, um, and, it encourage- and it basically makes it so that the incentives are set up so that companies are solving for time outside of work for their employees. So now it's time for a newer and very fun segment, a miscellaneous what the fuck. So Nathan, what the fuck's a miscellaneous what the fuck? Well, Michael, I'll tell you what the fuck a miscellaneous what the fuck is. This is so... like a doctor's suit, like a dirty doctor's suit. <laughs> I what the fuck over here, I what the fuck over there. <laughs> I miscellaneous what the fuck everywhere. <laughs> No, no, no. It's 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 old McDonald had a farm. Mm. Here, what the fuck everywhere? What the fuck everywhere? What the fuck? Anyways, uh, 
<laughs> so this is a segment that we started doing because we realized that every now and then a story would come across our desk that wouldn't really fit it wasn't about someone being a heinous individual, so it wasn't really an asshat, but it wasn't really a self-defeating argument, so it wasn't really a Dershowitz bag. It was just something where we looked at the story and just said to ourselves, what the fuck? <laughs> and the fact that it doesn't fit into the category of asshat or Dershowitz bag does not mean that you don't deserve to enjoy it the same way that we do. So, Michael. What is our miscellaneous WTF this week? Porn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm on board. It's a, it's yeah. <laughs> You're like I'm listening. <laughs> okay, so this is an this got my attention because I it, it like perfectly fits into this category. So here's the backstory. So recently, Utah passed a law that passed unanimously, which blows my mind um hmm. that requires anyone who wants to access adult content websites so porn to prove that they are 18 years of the like, 18 years old to do it so they have to use like a government record or a third-party identification service or something along those lines to check now i don't know how i would prove to a website that i was 18 so there's a problem right there yeah. but also like I've been told, of course, that usually when somebody's watching porn on the internet, they kind of want to like be anonymous with it. So they're not going to send you their fucking ID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, 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 you know, someone's looking up some messed up, like stepdaughter shit. <laughs> and they're like, oh, let me send you my license so you know exactly who I am. Exactly. Exactly. Like, who's, who's going to do that? that? Yeah. There's like, Google has a whole, branch incognito windows <laughs> just designed for this like <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so no, so no, no no it's so you can it's so you can find gifts for your relatives without them knowing that's what google says it's about <laughs> exactly and so um that's one concern that's a, on the serious side of things like the personal privacy information for like porn sites who like i can't imagine have the best reputation for keeping people's data super secure like yeah. th that's one concern that's rather serious um but porn sites like pornhub have claimed that there's really no effective way for them to comply with this law and so partly out of protest partly out of spite uh pornhub fought back a little bit they completely shut down the website in Utah. And not only that, apparently, I haven't seen the video, I'm not in Utah, I, had, I haven't set up a VPN there, but apparently there is like a fully dressed porn star that shows up on the screen when you try to access Pornhub in Utah that explains to you that if you want to access Pornhub, you have to talk to your legislature. <laughs> which is like talk about guerrilla activism yeah i wish they yeah. would do that for everything like anytime there's like a social thing in just like send a state out a that, porn star yeah yeah well, yeah <laughs> you want access if you want to access porn you got to call your congressperson about about abortion rights and then you can get in <laughs> like that's they actually they there was actually some videos that did that um i think college humor did that hmm. for uh for net neutrality oh where they had where they had a bunch of porn stars explain the importance of net neutrality mm -hmm. that is so interesting that yeah is so interesting so obviously like we don't need to wade into whether 
like kids should be able to or like teenagers or whatever should be able to like find porn on the internet. But like the fact that I just thought it was so funny that Pornhub is like slapping back at Utah, especially Utah. Yeah. Utah has some of the highest porn consumption rates <laughs> in the United States. Which, you know, given the demographics, I would hope they do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And apparently following this law's passing, the use of virtual private networks, VPNs, which allow you to set your IP address to a different location than where you actually are, skyrocketed in Utah. <laughs> Utah now tops all 50 states for VPN searches. I figured it out. They more I than figured doubled. it out. Yeah. Yeah. I figured it out. Big VPN did this. <laughs> Big VPN did this. Big they lobbied. VPN. They lobbied the state legislature of Utah in order to pass this law because they knew this would happen. Big VPN. That sounds like the name Big of a VPN. porn, a porn video. <laughs> 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 so I just thought this was so funny and like a hilarious, like just backfiring of a law passed in Utah, ultimately rooted in anti-sex sentiment, like sex negativity, all that stuff, which we can get into at a later date. But man, good job, Pornhub. And congratulations for being our miscellaneous what the fuck. And now we will end our show as we usually do. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that my my wife, who has been working on her social work degree, mm -hmm. passed her oral comps, her oral comprehensive exams, mm. which means that she will be receiving the laurels of Bacchus. She will be uh, receiving her bachelor's degree. Um, that and is I am, amazing. I am so I am so proud of her. Uh, that is so exciting. It's uh, she's she's been working on it for for many years. Um, she's a non traditional student, so her her college uh, her college route has definitely taken a lot of twists and turns. Um, but she's she she's she's gotten it. Uh, she will be she will be a bachelor. She will be a social worker, and I'm so proud of her. That is such awesome news. Oh my gosh, that is so exciting. So for backstory for folks. I actually knew Jess before Nathan knew Jess. Yes. Because she and I went to school together back in the day. Um, and that is, I, I, I know Jess loves school. <laughs> I know that she loves reading and literature and all that stuff. She always has the most insightful things to say in our literature class. But I'm sure she's super excited to be, uh, to be finishing this stage of the journey. So that's yeah. uh, so, so amazing. Congratulations to her. Yeah. What about you, Michael? What's uh, what's your highlight? Um, I, I think it was probably this past weekend. Uh, it was like a pretty chill weekend for me and Bree. We got an opportunity to like go out and do some touristy stuff a little bit in Seattle and just like feel like we're kind of at home in our new home and exploring the city and all that stuff. Um, got to eat some good food and see a couple and see some friends and stuff. So it was just a really nice weekend. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Wonderful. And, of course, we could not end this show without thanking all of the amazing people that make it possible. So thank you first to our amazing patrons, Taylor Bloom, Jerry DeViller, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Chaska, Josh, and Tobias Janssen. And thank you to our amazing editor, Kayla, 
for all they do to make this show possible. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to The Perspectrum. You'll hear from us again next week. Thank you.